Welcome to Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information that you need on the topics of the day. No bias, no conjecture, just facts. So, let's go. You know, I don't think that Canadians give a lot of credit to the fact that our country is um, perhaps the most naturally wealthy in the world, considering all the different minerals and resources we have. You know, Canada has so many minerals and resources like fresh water and uranium and gold and diamonds and natural gas. You know how many countries around the world are probably envious of us because of that. I think that many Canadians are probably, uh, you know, underestimating how naturally wealthy we are. Nickel and, and timber. We haven't even talked about forestry. Um, salmon, it, the list goes on and on in terms of what our country, the second largest landmass, has. And of course, what makes the news is oil. We have 10% of the world's known, resort, known reserves of oil. 10%. That's 171 billion barrels of oil in Canada. Most of that in the tar sands. Um, but so many emerging economies will need oil in the future. You know, I was reading this, uh, many reports about the future of oil. And um, emerging economies like China and India are going to desperately need oil to sustain their growth. In fact, the International Energy Agency, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, so many other organizations uh, and researchers are saying that over the next 40 to 50 years, oil will actually increase in demand. Now, that's interesting because, you know, in Canada and so many other countries, developed countries, developing countries, there is a shift towards uh, greater limits on fossil fuels and, you know, moving off uh, the dependency on fossil fuels. But in emerging economies like India and China, which, uh, according to the International Energy Agency, are going to account for 85% of that new growth, um, you know, there's more and more people entering the middle class. And with entering the middle class comes, uh, you know, demand for cars, demand for ha- better houses, demand for, uh, you know, middle class um, consumer goods, you know, better quality fridges and dishwashers and laundry machines and everything else we think about the middle class. So when we when we think about this and we think about, the, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people coming out of poverty into these new um, economic classes, and the fact that domestic air travel in China and India is ridiculously high, uh, and we still haven't found a real alternative to jet fuel. The Canada finds itself in a very interesting position for the next 50 years. I think what's also interesting with this is that our major oil consumer, uh, our customer has been the United States. And that's probably why we've built a lot of uh, infrastructure with the United States, partially because of all of the trade we do with natural resources, and particularly oil. And, you know, since the Obama administration and now to Trump, what we see with the United States is that they're actually um, they're producing more oil domestically than ever before. So since 2008, to 2017, approximately, the, sorry, the oil uh, production in the United States went up by 87 percent, according to the 
Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. So we see our largest trading partner developing their own oil to satisfy their own domestic demand. Now that's really critical uh, for uh, countries, uh, entire regions around the world, like the Middle East. Um, But for Canada, it puts us in a little bit of a quagmire because we have this infrastructure with the United States. If they're developing more oil internally to uh, satisfy domestic demand, it'll be interesting to see where Canada can go in the future. And it seems like the future is the Asian markets. It's China, it's India, it's South Korea, it's Japan, these countries that don't produce enough oil, if any, to satisfy their own domestic demands. So in many ways, Canada and Canadians should consider our country and our, you know, the, the natural resources we have very lucky because it contributes to our GDP. And so that really does help our standard of living quite dramatically. But thinking about this pressure, thinking about the pressure of, you know, the future of Canada over the next 40 to 50 years, getting our products to market is what it rests on. And getting our products to market rests on meaningful engagement, especially with our Indigenous peoples. And what we saw with Trans Mountain was the expansion pipeline being proposed and, um, that meaningful engagement component not exactly being there. So Trans Mountain Pipeline is a pipeline that runs from Edmonton to Burnaby, BC. And it uh, travels over 1,100 kilometers and transports 300,000 barrels per day of oil. And to me, that's interesting because it's 1,100 kilometers and it was... uh, it's, first of all, it's amazing engineering feat that it goes that far, especially considering that it crisscrosses some of the most rugged terrain of Canada. So it goes through Jasper Provincial Park, Mount Robson Provincial Park. It crosses 49 small rivers. It goes through the Fraser River Valley. It goes through such elevations um, in land above, uh, it goes through the Rocky Mountains, and, you know, it goes to Burnaby, B.C. And originally it was to uh, satisfy the demand from California. Um, and so to do 300,000 barrels per day is incredible. And again, this is 1953 it was constructed. Now, you'd think that with a pipeline of that magnitude or that sp- space of land, there would be some type of public consultation. They must have talked to the public. They must have talked to landowners. They must have talked to environmentalists and indigenous communities. But they didn't. There was no public consultation at all. And so they built this pipeline, and there was zero, zero public consultation. It crossed two provinces through all types of terrain. Who knows how many different traditional territories it crossed. No public consultation, and it was built. And again, you'd think with these pipeline constructions that there would be some environmental assessment or some safety regulation or some type of regulatory body that oversaw its construction. But maybe that's just me thinking about this uh, in the 21st century. Um, But what we saw with Trans Mountain was that this is a pipeline that was built, and in the 1960s, the National Energy Board is created. 
The National Energy Board is created with the mandate at the time to oversee the construction, the operation, um, to make sure that human health and safety were not being put into jeopardy by the construction of pipelines. Enbridge built a pipeline from Alberta to Wisconsin, trans- transporting natural gas. And so there was these real, there were these real concerns about whether or not these pipelines um, could threaten um, communities and people. And so the NEB was originally responsible looking at just the overall construction and operation of these pipelines. But as time moved on, the NEB's power increased. And, uh, you know, in 2012, the, the Harper government increased the NEB's scope and reach to include environmental assessments and looking at Indigenous rights uh, when constructing new pipelines. So by 2012, Kinder Morgan, owner of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, puts forward an application. And this application is for the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. It's a pipeline that would run in sync with the current pipeline. It would, it's called twinning, so it's the exact, not the exact, but a similar pipeline along the exact same route of the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline. This would not double the number of uh, barrels of oil per day. It would actually nearly triple it to about 890,000 barrels per day. Now, this is a lot. It's a lot of oil that would be uh, needed. And again, Canada is found in this position of, well, you know, demand is going to increase in the Asian markets. This gets more oil to the West Coast. And we could, you know, increase tankers to come in and get our oil and ship it off to China um, or to the Asian Asia Pacific Rim. And, you know, so, you know, given the emerging markets and the need for oil, you know, Trans Mountains put under a lot of scrutiny. Tell me why this project is needed and why is it so critical? So Trans Mountain talks about supply. It talks about the fact that supply for oil is desperately, sorry, demand for oil will desperately go up and therefore supply needs to meet it. Trans Mountain also talks about the fact that pipelines are very environmentally safe. In fact, since the 1960s, about 99% of all oil has been transported outside of Canada by pipelines, resulting in about 1% of all spills. And so it's much safer than, ta- than trains and trucks. It can get products out to the markets faster in a more efficient way. And so Trans Mountain is relying a lot on demand that is emerging in these markets. Of course, the National Energy Board looks at this and says, well, you know, there is talk of a looming recession. And also countries are looking elsewhere for oil. In fact, if we look at the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the first pipeline, it was to produce, it can produce up to 300,000 barrels of oil per day. But in the recent past, it hasn't produced that. In fact, it's been around 200,000 barrels of oil per day. And so this is partially because of increasing competition from other countries. Oil in the United States is being developed domestically more than ever before. Other countries like China and other countries in the Asia-Pacific Rim are looking elsewhere for their oil supplies. And so Canada, again, is, is caught in this hard place of how we get our, our product to market, but in the most impactful way. But most importantly, 
One thing that Trans Mountain failed to do, at least in their initial application and then into further consultations, is meaningful engagement. Meaningful engagement with Indigenous peoples. This is critical, and this is why I believe this pipeline did not go through, at least initially. Meaningful engagement with Indigenous peoples today is what didn't happen in 1953. It's exactly why Trans Mountain at the time was able to build their pipeline back then, because they were, there was no requirement for them to do that. Today, there is. And it's not enough that you talk to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. It's that it's meaningful. Is that there is actual meaning to it. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and, you know, they were there physically and present, but they weren't really there mentally? They weren't fully there. And you ask yourself, well, why aren't you as mad about this as I am? Can you believe what that person said? And, you know, they just don't have that reaction. Maybe it's because they weren't listening to you. You know, they didn't feel this kind of the same way you did, or maybe they were just on their phone kind of tuning out. But either way, you didn't feel that you were actually being engaged with. You You might have felt that this person kind of tuned you out after a while, but really, the concerns that were important to you, it wasn't really important to them. Or if it was important to them, they didn't see it as important as you saw it. So, for example, you know, you might say that, mm, I really don't like, uh, you know, the there's more development in my area than ever before. And you tell a friend who doesn't live in that area about all this new construction and development, they're ripping up your roads, you're trying to take your kids for a walk, there's all these cement trucks everywhere. You know, your friend doesn't really get it because they don't live in that area. But every day you have to breathe in those fumes, every day you have to see those trucks uh, on your street, every day it's hard for you to get in and out, your boots and shoes are all ruined from the construction dust. But the other person doesn't get it because they don't live in your area. And so as much as you try to explain to them the concerns you have, they're, they're physically present and mentally maybe, but they don't prioritize your concerns the way you prioritize your concerns. And that's exactly what happened with Kinder Morgan and the indigenous groups they consulted with. When the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline was being proposed, There were about 52 different indigenous groups along the pipeline's routes that were consulted with and engaged with by uh, Trans Mountain itself. And these groups indicated many concerns. They identified cultural and sacred sites, trails and trailway areas, hunting and fishing grounds, forestry. All of these things would change with the advent of this uh, this new expansion pipeline. Specifically, they found five habitation sites, 43 hunter, hunting and gathering sites. They, f- they found seven fishing sites. The list goes on. There were so many sites that these indigenous groups felt were so critical to their way of life, that these were very critical, and that they were willing to work with a company on figuring out how exactly these can be protected while the pipeline uh, is built. The problem is, is that in the National Energy Board report that Trans Mountain put forward, Trans Mountain deemed some of these to be either low risk or short term in nature. So if a community said, hey, you know, this pipeline is going to change our, our, our hunting grounds, um, 
you know, the community might say, well, listen, not, not all of us um, hunt on these hunting grounds, but it will change the habitat of the animals that come through here. And in, as a result, it's, it is an attack on our culture and our traditional way of life. Again, Trans Mountain looked at this and said, okay, well, not all of you hunt on this land. Not all of you are, um, uh, you know, living your livelihoods through hunting off this land. So we're going to deem this as low risk or that it's short term in nature. And trust me, once the pipeline's finished, we're going to help you get those animals back to your to their original habitats. The problem with understanding it this way is that Trans Mountain didn't understand how, how important this was for the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities. How hunting was tied to their cultural identity and their reason for being on this earth. How all of these things combined was an attack on their culture. And if they weren't being engaged in a meaningful and respectful way, they didn't feel that they could fully support it. I say they because there are many First Nations groups along this route who did support the um, uh, Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline with various caveats. And there is no unified voice for it when it comes to Indigenous groups, especially on this issue. But what's important here to know is that where Trans Mountain assessed traditional rights, the assessment methodology was flawed by many communities. At least they felt it. They felt that what they determined to be a priority, Trans Mountain did not. They didn't understand why they valued fishing and hunting to the extent that they did. They didn't understand why this should be low risk or no risk. So because of this, this led to conflict. A lot of indigenous groups felt that their, their voices were not being heard. Now, there were many problems with the Trans Mountain, Mountain expansion line, including costs to the environment and human health costs and a whole host of others. But the indigenous component is important here because it rests on the ability to meaningfully engage. So on August 30th, 2018, the federal government actually approves the expansion pipeline with the shareholders at Trans Mountain. But one of the First Nation communities actually challenges this um, agreement in court through the Federal Court of Appeal. And on the next day, August 31st, 2018, the Federal Court of Appeal says, at phase three of the consultation process, the FCA held the government failed to engage dialogue meaningfully and grapple with the real concerns of the Indigenous applicants so as to explore possible accommodation of those concerns. The Federal Court of Appeal struck down the uh, Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, and it forced the National Energy Board and Trans Mountain to go back and meaningfully engage with these communities and come back with a follow-up report by February 22, 2019. What's very important here is that the consultations with Indigenous group, groups happened after the National Energy Board made a recommendation to the federal cabinet and before cabinet made a decision. Ultimately, what happened here was the process was just not followed. Again, this is not the FCA siding with the Indigenous peoples and saying you have every right. It's actually the methodology and the assessment of determining those rights are so flawed. So again, it comes down to meaningful engagement. 
Indigenous groups did not feel that their voices were being heard and they were not part of this dialogue in Canada. And as a result of that one miscalculation and, and a major miscalculation by Trans Mountain, it spirals into the, pro- the project being delayed and potentially putting Canada's ability to stay competitive on a world market scale when it comes to oil. What's really critical here is that you know, February 22nd is coming up and there will be a new report and it is hoped that a middle ground with Indigenous groups can be found. But to me, what's interesting is that it all rests on the ability for communities to feel that the uh, uh, private companies are engaging them in a way where they try to understand what's important to them. Going back to the example of someone having you know, trying to explain to you why there's all this construction in their in their area and the other person not lis- listening or learning, it's, it, there's so many parallels with that with Indigenous groups. It's almost like these groups are trying to explain their cultural rights as clearly as possible, but Trans Mountain just simply doesn't seem to understand it or get it, or the assessment of what groups seem to be as a high risk, Trans Mountain doesn't see it as such. And that right there is the central point of what could break entire multi-billion dollar agreements and contracts and projects because of that simple misunderstanding. So what lessons do we learn from this? I mean, there are so many nuances to the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline. The fact that the federal government bought it back from Kinder Morgan and now publicly owns it and what the, you know, for $4.5 billion and you know, there's a lot of nuances to the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline. But ultimately, what I saw from this expansion pipeline project was that here was a group who was willing to work and is and is continuing to work with Trans Mountain and Kinder Morgan and the government and the National Energy Board in raising their concerns about what this pipeline will bring. And yet, despite this, the understanding of what... Th- Indigenous groups feel as their concerns were not being felt by Trans Mountain and by the National Energy Board. The reality is, is that the National Energy Board is supposed to, uh, you know, be that kind of uh, overseer of these types of projects. But the reality that these groups did not feel that they were meaningfully engaged is a major lesson to Canada. Canada, again, going back to the beginning of this podcast, is in an interesting place in the next 40 to 50 years. There will be more competition for oil. I am assuming that countries are ramping up exploration ideas and activities domestically, so they don't need to go to Canada or any other country for their own oil needs. But also, the reality is is that there are so many emerging markets in the Asia-Pacific Rim, China and India leading the way, and that it is only natural that in the, next, in the near term, demand for oil will dramatically increase. And so Canada needs to position itself where it can not only get its product to market, which is, I think, the end goal here, but that that it does so in a very respectful manner, understanding all of the nuances. Canada could be a leader in this area if we get this right, if we get how to engage properly and meaningfully with our Indigenous communities, if we get this right, if if we enact some, you know, really stringent environmental assessment, regulatory regimes, we might even, if we get that right on the government side, this might attract business because 
there'll be less things for them to uh, fully take on themselves. But the important point here is that government needs to be very efficient and effective when we're working with indigenous groups and peoples. It's so critical, especially in Alberta and BC, BC particularly because there are no treaties, numbered treaties, that covers that entire province. And so negotiating with First Nations, Métis and Inuit, are so critical. I think what's also critical here is that Canada understands that these these projects are so pivotal to the future economy and the future success of our country. We have to spend the time doing this in a meaningful way. Can you believe that without meaningful engagement, these entire projects can crumble? You know, in, the 19, in 1953, this idea would not have even flowed. It, pipelines were just built on native land and without any consent, and they, they were able to build it very expediently. Today, it's a very different regulatory regime. Companies need to recognize that, but Canada needs to recognize that. Canada needs to remember its place in the international economy and world. We need to figure these things out. We need to work with our Indigenous people, help our companies um, work with our communities, and also make sure that Canada stays attractive as a place to do business in. You know, if we don't get these things right, the effects could be very detrimental to our future. And that's the last thing we want. Anyhow, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Again, it's a quite of a, a bit of a departure. I'm not here trying to unpack the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline too much. But what I'm trying to do in this episode is show you that when we miss out on meaningful engagement, man, it could have some negative and detrimental effects for our economy and the future of our country. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information that you need on the topics of the day. And remember, stay balanced, stay informed, 